Fualsha, 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 Akarjakil, Kajemra Tashif. Welcome to episode 82 of the Rebel Matters podcast. This week's guest on the show is Gemma Dunleavy. Gemma recently released an EP called Up the Flats, which is inspired by Sheriff Street, which is the area in Dublin that Gemma grew up in and still lives in. And as you'll hear during the conversation, a lot of the inspiration for this EP was to show the importance and the value of community, especially in the face of a lot of the recent commercial developments that have been happening in the Sheriff Street area. This episode is going to be coming out on the 25th of September and Gemma is actually going to be playing two gigs in Cork this weekend if you're listening to this at the time of release in the Kino. The first gig is on Saturday night, the 26th, and the second is on Sunday. And I think as it stands, the Saturday gig is sold out and there could still be some tickets left for the Sunday. And if you do get the opportunity to go and see Gemma doing her thing, then you should definitely do it. But at the very least, go to Spotify after you've listened to this and go and give a listen to Up The Flats and the five tracks that are on that EP. Lads, a massive thank you to everyone who listened to the episode with Lawrence last week. We had an absolutely massive response to that episode. So, if you haven't heard it yet, then you can go back and listen to it on all of the usual podcast platforms. Lawrence McGeown spent 70 days on hunger strike in 1981 and more than likely would have been the 11th hunger striker to die in that hunger strike had the strike not been called off just on time. This week is going to mark the fifth episode in a row and also the fifth episode since Vicky Langan came on as the producer of the show. And as I mentioned last week, it has been an absolute game changer having Vicky on board in terms of setting up interviews, producing the episodes to a higher standard, doing a better kind of lead up and promotion of the episodes. And overall, it has massively increased the plans and the ambitions that we'll have for the Rebel Matters podcast. We have some sick stuff in the pipeline, which we'll be really excited to share with you over the coming weeks. But overall, we have got the wind in our sails at the minute. It's been really nice having Vicky on board, working together to get the episodes out every Friday. And a lot of the extra work that we're able to put into the show now is thanks to the people who have been supporting us on Patreon. So Gurukhead Milamaygov Alig Akarjagil, there was a good few people who signed up to the Patreon over the last week or so. So welcome aboard, lads. It's really good to have you. And I can't tell you how much myself and Vicky appreciate the support that we're getting. Not just through Patreon, but through people getting in touch with us through social media and the way that a lot of people have been sharing the episodes and sending us little comments and messages through the various social media platforms. It's a lovely wee boost whenever you get the message of someone saying that they just listened to an episode and enjoyed it. It's kind of energising or something. So keep them coming, lads, and keep the support going. A couple of other things that I wanted to mention to you is before we get stuck into the chats with Gemma. First of all, we set up a new web page on the Rebel Matters website, which is rebelmatters.ie. We made a special page so that we could put up the names of all the patrons of the show just as a small gesture of appreciation from Vicky and myself. You can go and check that page out if you want to 
on rebelmatters.ie forward slash patrons. I also want to give you a quick update on the merch side of things. We've got some brand new stickers printed, vinyl, waterproof vinyl stickers that all actually needed to be chopped up by hand. They got delivered on this like wallpaper of Rebel Matter stickers and I had to chop them up with a guillotine, a Stanley knife and a really long spirit level. And I posted those stickers out to everyone on the Salyak tier who had their addresses on the Patreon. If you're on that Salyak tier, the Willow Tree tier, and your address hasn't been added to Patreon, then you can just go and do it and drop us a message and I'll send those stickers out in the next run to the post office. The Dar tier, which is the middle tier on the Patreon, I'm just waiting on the pin badges to get delivered from left wing badges up in Dublin and when they're delivered I'll be sending out that batch of stuff with stickers and with pin badges and the third tier the Funchoke tier or the Ash Tree tier as I mentioned last week Emmett Walsh or Jowl underscore 666 is currently working on a very special commission for everyone on the Funchoke tier so as soon as that's done and as soon as the prints arrive from the printers i'm going to be sending that out i also set up the option of supporting the show with an annual membership as opposed to a monthly one so you can go and check that out and last but not least if you have been thinking about becoming a patron of the rebel matters podcast then you can find the rebel matters podcast on patreon and you can pick one of those three tiers that i just mentioned our ambitious goal at the minute is to have 100 patrons by the 100th episode of the Rebel Matters podcast and this is the 82nd so we have got 18 episodes to achieve that and just like all of the current patrons of the show if you do come on board as a supporter of the Rebel Matters podcast you'll become a very valued member of a small group of people who are helping us to keep on giving a platform to people like Gemma who have got a really great story to tell and on that note let's get stuck into episode 82 of the Rebel Matters podcast. What was it that motivated you to, to make that EP? Yeah, so there was aggressive redevelopment going on in my area and I was kind of not getting anywhere with fighting against it. So I said, look, I'm not going to let it go down without a bit of noise. So I started working on a um, kind of short film slash documentary um, on just kind of, I wanted to create like a time capsule of our community spirit down here because I could see the community being diluted and kind of like fading away and I was like I want to be able to like when I explain this to people I can never really articulate it so I want to try to capture it as best I can um, and I started doing that we shot one day of it two days actually we shot of it um, we, we shot a good lot of it in those two days and then we were planning on doing another day and during that time Dr Martins got in touch with me and said like look we'd love to have you a part of this project we're doing called uh, Dr Martin's Present where they kind of like 
support um, independent artists doing, say it could be a show, a video, uh, whatever. Like, so I said, how about we'll do a mixtape, like a collaborative mixtape. And then just kind of like slowly but surely that ended up just becoming an EP about my area. And the collaboration, it was a collaboration in a way, but the collaboration ended up being between not other musicians, but just people from my community. And I kind of, to be honest, music was the last thing on my mind at the time. I was kind of like, songwriting felt very fickle to me I just felt like I needed to be chained to that wall out there like that they're trying to knock down like and um and I was like hold on this is an opportunity this is a platform for me to get to shout about the things that is heavy on my mind and it, there's a be- better chance of people listening you know so that's kind of how it came about and I wasn't even thinking about the music and the things I was thinking about telling these five different stories from the perspectives of people that I grew up around. And I wanted to give not just the side of this, not the perspective that we're used to seeing in the media or from the from the politicians or from the police or whatever. I wanted to give it from, from our side as well. So you're seeing the other side of the coin. So you're seeing, yeah, you're seeing the flaws in that person, but you're seeing what's on the backside of those flaws. And it's actually very rich in character. And sometimes it's, really hard and sad to look at what's on the other side of that but it you know 99% of the time it fully explains why the other side is there did you end up making a documentary or did that turn into the EP in the end no we so we're still making actually we have another day to shoot and we were meant to shoot it in February and then with everything that kind of happened with the lockdown we're still kind of we need to have crowds around for it so it's a little bit difficult I ended up using a lot of the sound from that documentary in the EP um, I work in the local school there like it's literally stones far away from the house and um, all the kids from the school I just said to them one day come here I'm doing we're making a film about the area come on out on Saturday and we'll have a fun we'll have a fun day and we just like they followed us around the area for like a whole day and they're gas like they're hilarious um, I'm well used to them but the 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 fellas that were filming probably aren't my nerves are gone you don't know what they're going to come out with you don't know what they're going to do you know one minute they're your best pal the next minute they're trying to break but, but it was actually great we had we had a laugh doing it with them and I'm in the school with them and they keep when's that documentary coming out when's that coming out when are we going to be on the telly so I have to do I have to finish it but I think it might be actually really nice having finished it after making the EP because the EP kind of came together itself it happened really quick I started writing it in February it was out in July and um, you know none of those songs existed before March really so um, so it might be nice finishing it having, having done that you know kind of just seeing where it seeing how the, the it unfolds and like I think that I've really during making this EP and, and doing interviews like this, I've really realised even more. It's nearly been like therapy or something for me, realising really what it is that I, that I, that essence of what I love from around here, you know, so it might help me capture. Sheriff Street isn't Dublin one, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. So is, isn't that, is like, does that include where the three arena is? That's the whole area that you're talking yeah. about, isn't it? When you're, when you're um, yeah. with EP and all that? Yeah, so it's kind of like the Lewis track now runs down. It's a where where the tree arena is like years ago. Um, you know, that whole area was the docklands and kind of like air flats was just in the middle of the docklands kind of so like, you know, the kids' playground was like the docks and the, the water there and kind of like, you know, my ma would talk about like being in school sometimes and uh, 
and the school getting closed down because there was a bull on the loose, you know, a bull would be after getting out from, from the from the cattle market from one of the ships and it'd be running around the area and they'd have to lock down the school and stuff. Um, the docks is a huge part, but it's so mad because you walk down the tree arena now and you, you wouldn't recognise it. Like, even separating Cherry Street from the IFSC is this big, big, tall grey wall with barbed wire across the top of it. It's crazy. Like, this day and age, like... Um, I was talking to one of my neighbours recently and she said years ago when she was a kid, she used to look up at that wall and she used to say, one day I'm going to live on the apartments on the other side of it, you know. And, like, that's the kind of mentality. Like, that's why the kids around, like, you know, even now, like, even, like, I've, I have friends that wouldn't be from here and, like, they'd come down and, like, one of them said to me one day, like, is that okay to park my car on Shower Street? And I'm like, if you want to come down to this area you know park your car on Cherry Street or else get out like you know having this kind of attitude like like I know maybe that's a little bit harsh but like you know they're coming around and saying to the kids that live there it's alright to park our car here and leaving their shiny cars there and then walking around the other side of the barbed wire wall to like live in their like lovely apartment that none of us will ever be able to rent you know what I mean because we can't afford to rent you know so it's kind of like it's it's uh it's mad thinking that that's the same area do you know that way yeah and i would say that probably not a lot of people know about that and the, the first time that i figured out where sheriff street was was me and one of my brothers were going to see christy moore and um not in the three arena but in the place across isn't there another like the board gosh place or something out there on yeah, the other side yeah, of the river and we ended up yeah, yeah and we ended up driving down i was like fuck guys like this is where sheriff street is i was like right beside you wouldn't know it because it's kind of when you think about the amount of people that go to the three arena for a gig, come into town, go to the three arena, get back out of there, go back into town again after the gig. Yeah. And sh- like, there's this little community that's just right there that it is, like you're saying, it's kind of getting, you get the sense that it's just getting kind of like um, suffocated by all the stuff that's getting built up around it. Yeah, exactly. It is like, there's actually, um, there's a there's a poet from this area. She's an incredible poet. She writes poetry. There's a book her and another girl who's actually a cousin of mine. They made this book. One of the girls is, a, is an oil painter. The other one is a poet. Tara Kearns and Michelle Bourne is her name. And they made this book called Adwantes. And it's um, got gorgeous, gorgeous poems in it and paintings. And the poems are basically kind of depicting working class life in Cherry Street from the eyes of a child. And she describes such and such a stuff in such a beautiful way. And she talks about the buildings growing up like weeds around us. And like, if that's the, if you, there couldn't be a better description for the way things. I mean, you look around here and you're seeing like, like I was in the school the other morning. I was waiting on the kids to come into the class and I was looking out and I, I think I counted 36 cranes. It's like just out the school window. You know what I mean? Like, it's actually, it's crazy. Like, uh, the, the, the kind of, speeds that the developments are going up around here and none of them consider the residents none of them do like the, the good thing for us like is we this is this has happened to us before this is why i kind of put my foot down with the stuff that's happening across the road there is because in the 80s when they were knocking down stuff and you know and uh and um and planning for um planning on building the new developments they promised us the world like you know also like People in most people in the flats, they, they 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 were working their backs off just to raise their kids. Most people had like you know a gang of kids in the house, um, and that's how we were all kind of raised by not just your, your own family but your neighbours and whatever. Everybody just shared the burdens, you know. And like the kids had no proper playgrounds, they had no facilities. There was the area was rampant with 
from the heroin epidemic, there's drugs everywhere. As a result of that, there's crime. Then there's this kind of stigma about being from Shire Street. So the people within the community have this, have a chip on their shoulder from constantly being degraded and stuff, you know. So there's there was this real kind of like, you know, tension within the area. And it made people in the flats and in the community really, really strong and stick together because it's all really all we had, you know, that way. So like, it's kind of... um. There's, there's like, yeah, there's a real kind of sense of like being hard done by, and that, that has, that has kind of like been bred into us down here. We're so used to that. No one listens. But the one thing that we do have is we have the experience. And back then in the day, they promised us everything. Oh, we're going to build social housing. We'll do. We'll have clubs for the kids. We'll have community plazas. We'll have all these things. And up the development went. Uh, they're going to provide jobs and all this. None of this was promised, and by law they have to um, they have to offer say ten percent or fifteen percent to social housing. So any developer that builds stuff in this community has to offer that. So they were like, oh well, at least we're going to get fifteen percent, you know, given to the community. But what happened was Dublin City Council couldn't afford the the ten or fifteen percent, right? They were like, that's out of our, we can't afford that. Like we can't afford it. So developers said. We actually have these other big developments out in Tala like that we're building. So we'll offer you 10 or 15% of them. So that was their little loophole. So Dublin City Council bought 10 or 15% of them and then shipped our community out to 10 or 15% of that. That was the worst thing that could have happened. That created like, so like you know, it, that created like, like an angst within the community. Like old people were terrified. People who were for years were afraid of breaking out of the community because they might not have had education they might not have had they didn't really have confidence going inside because you were called a scumbag you were you know from that area you had to put a different address on your cv to get a job so like people getting chipped out there they were terrified they were it was something that they just never you know had confidence to do and now all of a sudden they were their home was being taken off them so they had to go out there and we know that that happened before. And now there's this development's going up here and I'm looking through the plan permission and there's all these stuff in it. Like, we're going to create, this is so hilarious, a community plaza. We're going to, you know, all the stuff that, and I actually did a documentary, I did a voiceover for a documentary on what happened in the 80s in the Docklands. So like, not only do I have the experience and the memories of seeing everything that happened and, you know, hearing me nanny's not talking about it, I literally have the statistics in my head because I had to learn them for that documentary. And I'm looking at the planning permission for this and I'm like, am I, like, this is like Groundhog Day. I'm not just reading the same thing. And I'm like, I didn't fall off tree yesterday. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is, like, I know that this isn't going to happen. So I think kind of, they're not used to people being up on them because developers like that can take advantage of people in inner city areas because more often than not people in inner city communities and I'm sure you know this yourself like have real problems on their doorstep you know they they might have they might have a pro- issue with drugs in their household or crime in their household they might be really struggling tourists say to tourists say to feed their kids or you know they have real problems on their doorstep they don't have time to read through a hundred page planning and permission document to see what they're getting you know what wool is being pulled over their eyes it's not an immediate thing now if a sign went up in the local shop because that's where the planning permission went up if a sign went up in the local shop saying tomorrow uh you know 70 percent of the housing in this community is going to be knocked down all of the 70% of families in this community are going to be moved out to Tala. Um, 
this whole community is going to be full with tech workers and offices, there would be hysteria. There would be like there would be immediate backlash. There'd be uproar. There'd be but because it's in the distance and this is kind of going to be an ongoing and it's nearly like it's like people are investing in our community's demise. And because it's so far down the road, it's very hard for people who have real problems on their doorstep to, you know, to fight against that. What is it that they're building? They're building a 300 euro, 300 million euro development, which is going to be Ireland's first skyscraper. Uh, right, r- literally right there. So like, you probably wouldn't, you know, be able to see. I'm trying to like do a bit of shade to give you an idea of what it would be like in five years time. This is going to be getting built for five years. So there's going to be a hotel and there's going to be 746 build to rent apartments. So build to rent apartments are currently at, I think two and a half is the average two and a half for, for a rent a month. Um, two and a half, two and a half know, grand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so, so none of us are going to be able to afford that. You know, like the thing is like, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm 29 and I don't have kids at, like, you know, I, and I have the privilege of being able to look up this stuff. I work a few jobs, right. And I wouldn't be able to afford that. The majority of the people that I grew up around, like my age, a lot of my friends, they have kids they're working to they're working to not only support themselves but to, to feed their kids, to send their kids to school, to give their kids an education. They're not going to be able to afford that. Do you know what I mean? Like, if I can't, like, what hope is there for anybody? Do you know what I mean? If like I I'm I'm in like a very privileged position to be able to have the time and the mental capacity to like look this up. Sometimes, sometimes, like at the minute, like I do, and sometimes I just don't because there's other stuff going on, and like, you know. I think it's, I think it's, that's, that's the thing that kind of keeps me awake at night, that kind of sneakiness. It's like, you are taking advantage of disadvantaged people, um, you know, and they're going to wake up one day and they're going to, they're going to remember what they had and realize it's not there anymore. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and just, you know, like looking at even now, like it's the same kind of in a lot of places in the country. Um, but like, you know, like I have, I have cousins who are in their thirties with, three and four kids who still living with their ma because they can't afford a place. Like, you know, like I have friend, if a friend of mine who has two kids, like she can't afford anywhere to live with her kids. Do you know that way? She's working two jobs to try to like support her and her kids and to try to get out of that kind of um, the social welfare system when you're at that point. So fucking hard. It's really hard. Like, like, you know, she's kind of like, well, if I, if I get off the half, like the, the, you know, the, the social welfare rent scheme, like she's like, if I get off that, like I can't, uh, I'm not going to be able to like support my kids. Like, but then while I'm on that, I don't have a lot of choice of where I live because not, not many landlords take the half. So it's kind of like, do you know that way? It's, it's, it's catch 22. See that thing you were saying about making the documentary and it kind of like, uh, building your sort of like armory of statistics and I can yeah. really actually re- relate to that about 10 years ago we made a documentary about Belfast and it was going through every decade of Belfast from the 1910 to 2010 it's like wow. the kind of coincide with the time the Titanic was uh oh, whatever right. set sail or whatever and uh I just remember thinking, like I've always had this really strong connection with the area that we grew up in 
and and West Belfast and Belfast in general, but especially our, our own area. And I remember when we were doing that and going around, I think we interviewed like 17 or 18 people. And every time I did one, it was like, I was getting someone else's perspective on it and kind of getting a snippet of the life that they had in the area, maybe like 50 years ago or something like that. And it was just kind of strengthening the ties that I had to the place that I came from and kind of giving me like more ties to the community. And one of the the lines that struck me the most, you kind of mentioned it already there uh, from the Doc Martin uh, video was about not just getting raised by your immediate family, but that the community all have a hand in raising you and I think like such an important thing to talk about especially when you're talking about it in relation to working class areas that have been stigmatized and that have got a bad rap for whatever reason so like what what are your do you have like some really standout memories of like when you were growing up and how like examples of how you were being raised by like just people outside of your immediate family yeah well like for example my this actually came full circle on me the other day. So my, I grew up, uh, like I was born in the flats, right? Um, my ma is the youngest of eight and my dad somewhere in the middle of eight, right? So they were the only two that had, of all their siblings, they all, they all had loads of kids, right? And we we're all real close. They were the only two that only had one child. But I never really grew up like an only child because I lived in my nannies and there was loads of kids there constantly. Um, and my nanny had a best friend, right, who was 14 years her, uh, she, fourteen years younger than her. And her name was Darkie, and she was always with my nanny every day, three times a day. So she kind of like, you know, I have memories when I was younger and I had the chicken pox, and it wasn't, it wasn't my ma or my dad or my nanny putting the thing on me. It was her, like, you know. And so much, I mean, she, she like raised me, like, you know, she helped raise me, so did all my aunties and stuff. And so I, her, her oh, she's four sons and they all have kids and I call them my cousins. I'm closer with some of them than I am my own cousins, even though I'm so close with them. And all her sisters and stuff, I call me aunt, like my great aunties, you know. And it's so mad because we're not blood related at all, but like her and all her family, like, you know, like, we like it's so mad to think that we're not related and everybody around the area thinks that we're related and stuff like that you know because we are like but we're not blood related but so going back past their generation so my nanny and her best friend both their parents lived in a flat complex called liberty house right they would have also lived in the corporation buildings which were like big tenement houses houses but then when they upgraded from them, moved into Liberty House flats because the tenements were like, you know, really like, you know, when I saw pictures of them the other day because they were well before my time. Like, Jesus, they really were like the slums, you know. But they they loved it there. Like, they that's their memories. But they moved into Liberty House flats and they lived on the top balcony right next door to each other. And there was the Boulders, which is my nanny's best friend, Darkie, her poor family's house. And the house next door was my nanny's house, which was the Farrells. And they were so close that they called each other. They they all called the, the father who lived in the Bulger's house, Daddy Bulger. And they all called my great nanny, Ma Farrell. And they nearly like shared each other's parents. And one of them would make dinner one day and they'd all be, and they were just neighbours. And from them just being neighbours, now four generations later, like me and my cousins, like were so close. And like, 
we're not actually blood related, you know. Um, and I actually shot a video for me song up the flats the other day. And we went up to Liberty House Flats and we shot in them. And I wouldn't know what number. Like, I know the balcony they live on and stuff, but I wouldn't know what number they, they live on because I wasn't even born then. I never I never went to those flats when they lived there or anything. They were well gone. But, <laughs> but I said, I'll go up and shoot the video. And we were shooting over. We had planned to shoot it over in certain certain uh, balcony and then the sun was shining and we're like oh come on we go over there and we went over there and everybody from the from the flat they're like oh she's Jackie Dunleavy yumming and she's in it and they're all having a conversation about who's yumman I am and who's granddaughter I am and who's this and one of them shouted up to me and it turned out we were filmed where the sun was shining and where we went, went around to film was right outside number 35 and 36 and that was Daddy Bulger's flat and Ma Farrell which is my great granny and me me nanny who is not me like blood, me blood relative her mother so me me like adopted great uh granny and grandfather and it was just so mad and i was saying to me mad jesus isn't it mad to think like such a strong connection from two neighbors is after lasting down four generations and building and becoming family like because they're they're our family you know um and and that's kind of the way it is and even like our whole community like our whole community came out the other day for my I was doing my video everyone came out like you know and um, we, sh- we we had a big party at the end of it and like they set up the PA down the end of the road they all the bingo gang come out because we've been doing bingo every week and like all the kids were out and you know like there is that sense of like you can just knock into your neighbour for anything and everybody kind of just you know it's real like when the kids are out playing down the end of the road like if they're carrying on, their ma just does, doesn't just give out to them. Anyone can be like, here you, like, you know, it's kind of that, that, like, I never re- I thought that was normal until I moved away or until I became friends with people outside my area and I realised it wasn't, you know. Was it kind of similar where you grew? I remember there's a good few of my friends that their, their door was just never locked. You could just, yeah. like, walk in or if you're sitting in your friend's house, then anybody could just walk in and, like, just sit yeah. down and you're having dinner with them or whatever. One yeah. day, no, actually, I was doing. I did this interview, um, <laughs> it was for the telly a couple of months ago, or no, about a month ago, and it actually really got me thinking about the stories that I was kind of like recalling from from West Belfast and stuff like that. There, because to be honest, I came away thinking, That's it, see those stories that I told in that interview, I'm never going to tell them again because I feel like that's what people want when they ask me about that. They want me to say like, okay, tell us about the maddest thing that ever happened or do you think it must have been mental in West Belfast in the mid nineties or well, what kind of shit was going on? And then it's not, and like there was mental stuff happening. Like there, there was mental stuff happening all the time. And, um, you know, like it's kind of interesting to think back at them now because we were just like teenagers running around and all this kind of mad shit was happening around us. But then at the same time, I'm kind of conscious that, First of all, there was other people who were way less fortunate than we were that ended up in the height of fucking shit for one reason or another, and who, um, yeah, who ended up involved in stuff that, um, because of the, the social situation that they, that they were in or whatever, or because of the conflict that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one and number two is, and maybe this is just me being paranoid, but sometimes I think that there's a bit of kind of like voyeurism or something involved with like when people are asking you they're trying to get the juicy stuff out of you from an area yeah. that they're not familiar with and that's like yeah. you're kind of like feeding 
the feeding the stigma that's attached oh, to an area yeah. or something like that there. Yeah, yeah, completely. And you, you nearly feel like you want to protect that and you like you feel really precious about it. Because when you're talking about that stuff, like from like I when I when I'm listening to you talking about that, I'm like, Jesus, I can feel the heaviness of it and I can imagine the madness of it. But I'm also thinking of like the fortunate characters that didn't slip through the net and that the ones that like made it. God, imagine how rich they are in their souls, in their experience, in their like you know, like going through experiences like that, like whether or not you were right in the middle of it or whether or not you were like something on the outside looking in, like that, like that creates old souls, you know? And like, yeah, it's unfortunate that people have to go through those things. But like one thing coming out the other side of any kind of like, you know, uh, like community trauma or anything like that, I think like you you will have something richer for the rest of your life that money will never buy education will never teach you like you know and that's something that I feel people from the outside and media and stuff like that they crave that because there's a there's a richness in that there's something in there's something in people that have survived through any kind of like trauma or hardship that we always want to try and understand. Like, that's why people get so obsessed, I think, with, like, true crime documentaries and stuff like that. Like, we always want to know, like, why, why or how? And you nearly want to know what's their darkest thing. And there's this kind of obsession with, like, finding out what the worst thing is. And, like, sensationalizing that is, like, I. it's so, I hate that because it's, like, you you don't appreciate the you don't appreciate what comes out the other side. You don't appreciate the richness or the character the characters that are behind that. Like you can tell when people don't and when they're just looking for a juicy story. But like you know, for me, I've like ex, like I've experienced so much with growing up here through various different elements through drugs, crime, through you know even some of my own friends and like that's stuff that like I'm really precious talking about, but I also am very aware that it's something that has like made me the character that I am. And like every day I'm look, I'm thinking about those people who slipped through the net and I'm thinking like, God, like, you know, like it's, it's so unfortunate. And I definitely wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to like use that, their story or that experience to give someone else a headline or, you know what I mean? One of the things that I'm most conscious of whenever people are asking me questions, uh, say about West Belfast or what it was like when we were growing up, is the fact that the generation that came before us did so much work to give us opportunities that they didn't have. And I think that that's kind of in part where that richness that you're talking about comes from, that kind of like old soul kind of feeling where you know that like that people made real sacrifices, came together, decided that something needed to be done and the people, the people themselves needed to do it for themselves because they couldn't depend on outside help. Like there's this um, kind of, I guess it's kind of a motto in West Belfast, it's especially uh, popular amongst like the Irish language speaking community. Don't say it, just do it. And that really does come from the feeling that like there was no help coming from the outside. If we need to make something happen, we're going to have to make it happen ourselves and then the people who are like say the generation before us and the generation before them got together and decided right we need a school for the young people that they can go to that they can get opportunities in education so that they can kind of like 
have a better life for themselves or so that they yeah. can keep our culture alive or our music alive. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really conscious of the fact that like we were given that opportunity. And another line out of the Dr. Martin's video that kind of stuck with me after I watched it, I, like watched it a few times over and there was like those two things were the getting raised by the community. And the other one was that like, even if you haven't got the, the kind of means or whatever, but when you have the fire to like do something really positive or like stand up and like try and make the conditions better for yourself or for your community, that that's the important thing. And I think that maybe that that's the most valuable thing that you can get from that kind of situation. Like, because when people are being discriminated against or are in a tough situation and come together, something happens that you just can't get any other way. Like, it just it, when people come together and they're like fuck it this is on our plate now we're going to make this happen yeah. and then the next generation has more opportunities than the previous generation and yeah. one of the things that really kind of plays on my mind a lot these days is um that we're i think like you don't really hear the stories of, of communities like that as often and because we're like in this kind of social media age where it's all like superficial and kind of curated that I'm afraid that we're going into this era of kind of individualism where they're like, well, look, everyone's out for themselves. So look, if I fucking made it, then you can fucking make it. And then it's like, if you're coming from a working class area, then you all of a sudden you get the, some opportunity to to like do the thing that you want to do or you end up like, like really achieving something that you really wanted to achieve that it's really important not to turn around to everyone else or community and be everyone else from your community and be like, right, come on, that's fuck's sake. Sure. If I, could, if I did it, like you just can all do it. Yeah. And no, it's like, you, yeah, you put your hand in and you go, come on, I'm up here. Come up to me. Like, you know, in our community and growing up, you know, if you had like, if you had a, like a, a half pan of bread and your neighbor knocked in for a few slices, you were sharing that pan. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's like just bringing that to like, you know, that's a, a microcosm of the way that, like, for example, when I was making this, this EP, I, I realized I make a lot of my music on my own in my room. I write it all here. I produce it all here. And I take it into the studio at the very end when all the ideas are done and I just want to record harp or work on more production elements or, you know, like I, I actually work very kind of solitary and isolated. And I was like, I'm making this record talking about my community. And like, I actually, I think I'm like craving that in terms of my working environment. I'm like, I'm not liking working on my own as much anymore. And so I decided to try to create that community vibe in the, in the uh, studio. And, and so we did, but then we got a week out of it and lockdown happened. Lockdown happened on the tours there on a Wednesday. And we were kind of like, by the Friday we were like, now we need to like not be doing this. Like now we were only with each other for the first week because it was like, you know, morning to night sessions. But then after the week we were like, right, we'll just do this remotely. So it was short lived, but it was lovely. But like even kind of like after doing that, I have really enjoyed doing every interview and every like I haven't been I haven't gotten tired doing interviews or talking about this record because I'm getting to talk about the stuff that I feel like no one has listened to for years, you know, within our community, people are now listening to, and not just because of me, but like, you know, if I can hook, uh, get a hook into someone's head for like 10 seconds in a day that like when they do eventually think about those lyrics, 
they're hearing about the fats or they're hearing about like, you know, like the song Stop the Lights, they're hearing about like the hardship of the, those young men caught up in crime and why they are the way they are. Like that for me is like job done. That's on some part of it is trickling into the subconscious and someday they're going to stop and think. And if that stops one person from like, you know, using the word junkie, like flippantly when they're talking about a drug addict, like, oh, amen. Like that to me is like, right, come on, like we're on a roll here. And even with doing like, I'm, I'm like do anything doing doing anything after this record like getting the kids in 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 my on my road and stuff having them in my video like and you know like two of them are waiting down the end of the road the other day being like can I be in the video and I was like yeah right get them in like like these like these kids are so talented they're amazing like put them up on the stage put them up on the platform like make them feel proud of them and where they're from and let them know don't don't let them like don't don't let them get to a stage where they're an adult before they realize how special they are because of the community they come from. Don't let them think all their all their life that they have to kind of neutralize themselves and tone down their accent and pretend to be a little bit more like everyone else in the classes or whatever that they go to. And then for them to get out of those and realize, oh, I had this richness inside me all along. Like show them that now, like you know, and and like I do, I do these classes. They're they're starting back up now. They stopped during lockdown, but I was just doing like free kind of singing music classes for kids within the area up in the local um, community college. And I had like twelve kids, like um, just doing different singing and stuff like that. And when I say like, if you could bottle and sell their confidence and their talent you'd be a billionaire like these kids are incredible and they're you know they're not trained they're not in any kind of way they haven't been coached or anything these kids just have a passion for performing like 10 year old writing unreal songs and stuff you know within the second week of the thing and like that is like I'm like right the next time any opportunity comes up like I'm always thinking of ways like that I'm like right can I put them on a record can I like bring them to a gig they're 10 so I can't really bring them to, to the like you know you're thinking of all these different ways because they're amazing and they need to be like you know they need to know that like you know like how did you get to be like this like I I don't really know I think like I've grown up like I have a huge family right like huge family and I always wanted to be a performer or whatever but like from as young as I remember I always had a real strong uh like sense of like I always had to fight for social justice even in in my group of friends when someone did something on someone you know what I mean like I I was always like that but also I do think it comes from having to grow up in a house with so many of my cousins around and like you know there'd be so many of us that you'd someone would go down the shop and get cool pops you know the, the cool I think do you call them cool pops we call the, them ice the pops lo- like I you know what you mean like you squeeze the hair the out long, the top. Thing, yeah. yeah yeah right and we'd get like loads of them and you'd cut them in half because there'd be that many of us and like, you know, having the eye out for who got the biggest one and stuff like that. I also think like having that, having to have that little bit of like street kind of being streetwise and stuff. And also like around here when you were younger, like you would get battered a lot. Like, do you know what I mean? If you weren't kind of like on top of your game, like, you know, you were, it was kind of like playing out the road was great, but it was also a bit of a lion's den at times. So you kind of had to have that about you. And I just think as well, like, I when I was younger I did a lot of things out of the norm for like you know in my group of friends just because I wanted to do singing and I wanted to do dancing and I was a dancer for years and like 
I did a lot of kind of shows and stuff when I was younger. And in doing that, I ended up in a lot of environments that weren't my comfort zone, like going to different, going to ballet, going to, you know, doing something in RT and whatever. And I was constantly around kind of like accents and uh, and classes and stuff that weren't what I had experienced. And I felt like I noticed that I was different and it wasn't because of me. It was because of like people asking, like kids asking, what's your mum do? You know, and I'm like, like you know I never thought about that before like do you know what I mean like and you know uh, where you asking you stuff like that where like where they'd hear you the way you say something and, and commenting on it and like I constantly was aware of that and I knew like I knew inside me like when I would hear people saying stuff like that I'd know straight away that they're judging me and then I would have this thing where like my thing like when you're out on the road playing like in our area like like my little niece and stuff like when she was like three I remember coming in raw and crying and it was a real thing like if someone hit you you were told to go out and hit them back you know that was the thing you didn't come in crying to your ma you, you hit them back you probably would be you'd probably have to cry more if you went in and told your ma because you'd get given out healthy for crying because someone hit you for not standing up for yourself but I remember like I remember being in ballet and one of the kids saying something like that to me and I remember thinking like okay well, like I wanted to that was my way of like like I couldn't cope with her like saying that to me and I wanted to I wanted to say stuff back to her but I knew then I was drawing more attention to the thing that she was pointing out and all I could think of was like yeah you wouldn't stand one minute in my ear you know like you know that was my way of trying to like make myself kind of feel a bit like better and that is something that like a nine-year-old shouldn't have to like shouldn't have to do do you know what I mean um and and I know I was privileged to be able to do that and do all those things, but it is something that you're aware of. And I think growing up here and and I see like I've loads of little cousins and nieces, nephews, like they're little old souls, they're hilarious, the stuff they come out with. Did you ever hear the saying like, Oh, she was here before, he was here before, like about little kids. They they all feel like they were here before. And I look at them and I'm like, You have so you've so much fire in you. You know when you see that energy in people and you go, They're either gonna be president of the country or they're going to be the biggest name in the paper for the energy going into the wrong, <laughs> the wrong <laughs> side, you know it's a very fine line between that energy being they're going to be successful in something and you want to channel it right and I see that in so many kids and I'm like you have the potential to, to literally rule the world like and you just need it's like I was lucky I wasn't like like I, I had the same upbringing as loads of my friends and you know, some of them, some of them actually that energy went into the wrong places and like some of them aren't here today because of it. And I was very lucky that I had that drive and I was able to steer myself. But realistically, honestly, like if I didn't have music or I didn't, if I hadn't found like dance from a young age, like that, I, I danced constantly. Like I, I was dancing like Monday to Saturday when I was a kid and then Sundays I did competitions every second week. So it was really, really like energetic and I constantly was doing stuff and I I genuinely think if I wasn't doing that I probably wouldn't have went down a very good road and I think about that every day. I can really relate to that when I think about all of us being in the, the GA club that we played for like we were up mm-hmm. there like nearly every day of the week like and I don't know what we would have been getting up to if I hadn't been going there or if it hadn't yeah. been for like we've got a match on Saturday so you're kind of like thinking about that and that's what yeah. you're kind of aiming for. Yeah. Who we who we listened to in music when music wise when you were growing up? When I was growing up, I was listening to 
like from like really young, like I loved kind of like just pop music. Now I was listening to, I think the very first like tape that I had or cassette tape that I had was like, I had like some cool stuff from influence from my older cousins, but like really the first thing that I kind of like, the first tape that I bought was like, uh, like Aqua. Do you remember Aqua? Barbie yeah. Girl, like Roses, Dr. Jones, all that, that album, right? And then I was really into Tupac and I kind of like, I wasn't really allowed to like have the, the CDs and stuff like that. Um, But I used to still get them because my cousins, my older cousins, and I used to love like Tupac and Maya and um, like... I do you know what like I didn't even I remember like my older cousins talking about the two-pack biggie feud so like I had no clue what it was I was like I don't know how old I was. I was I was quite young at the time and I remember like picking aside and I don't know why I think because I heard the song Dear Mama and I loved it like I and I was like yeah I, I prefer two-pack so I just loved two-pack for years Um. Then I loved kind of like Destiny's Child Uh. I loved Destiny's Child Um. I actually, do you know what? Like, I used to love Boys On when I was a kid. Like, I still have me Boys On belly top on. And Stephen Gately actually only lived on the road next to me. So I remember, like, being obsessed with Boys On. And my dad being, like... Because my man and dad would have been friends with his man and dad just because the community, you know. And I remember my dad bringing me around to the house one day. Uh, like, I'll bring you around, Stephen. Like, my dad bringing me around. And, like, oh, I, was, I was really young. And I remember I brought a bag of teddies for him to sign. Like, not just one teddy, a bag of teddies like a bag of teddies for him to sign. I don't even know how you would sign a teddy, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I brought around a bag of stuff for him to sign. So I kind of like, I loved all the like, you know, cheesy bands like Spice Girls and Boys Town and stuff at the time. But then as I started kind of getting older and my taste developed, like I really loved, um, you know, I loved a lot of like old soul and stuff like that. And like my dad would have listened a lot to like Frank Sinatra and like, uh, like, Harry Como and Dean Martin and stuff like that so I would have like been listening to a lot of that but then I kind of was getting into like Destiny's Child and then later Amy Winehouse and then I really loved like I love poetry and um, so I when I started writing like uh when I started writing music it I was already writing poetry so I was kind of just learning the guitar and trying to like blend it together and I used to love listening to like Laura Marling uh Neil Young um, I love Laura Marling and I still do. Her songwriting is incredible. Like she really inspired me when I first started writing. Um, just the way that she would describe. There's a line in one of her songs. She's talking about. I always, I always like listen to this and imagine like the scenery of whatever it was. And it turned out she was just talking about an ex that she didn't like anymore who had a really big nose. And she said, uh, "He wants to die in a lake in Geneva. The mountains could cover the shape of his nose." He wants to die where nobody can see him, but the beauty of his death will carry on so. But I don't believe him. And I always thought that that was so, like, such a profound statement. I always just be thinking, like, I thought way more into it when she said it was just about an ex, a big nose. I was like, Jesus Christ. Like, you know, imagine giving out about your ex and coming out that gorgeous sound, you know, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, another thing you were saying there about your man dad and one like Stephen Gately's man dad is one of my, like, abide memories of, like, Growing up around our way is that seeing no matter who me or one of my brothers or one of my friends ended up like going out with, like dating or whatever, our granny would always know their granny. 
it oh, was yeah. like <laughs> it was like if you wanted to know anything about them like you just go to our granny and be like here do you know such and such like oh yeah yeah no sure we used to live right beside each other and this is the crack with our family and all blah 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 every single time yeah. getting the lowdown like what are they like yeah i know it was like it was like my granny was like doing like some sort of like CAA background check on every single person that we ever went out with because she just knew yeah. uh, all her granny. Um, yeah. The, you know the way the EP is like, it's so real. It's just a direct kind of like reflection of what you're feeling about what's happening at the minute or yeah. like kind of storytelling about something that's really, really real and tangible. Has that always been a thread in the, in the music that you've been producing? Not really. Um, like, I think now when I look back, it's funny because I never really thought so. But now when I, like the very first like solo thing that I ever released was uh, called I Was Never Young But I'm Not Yet Old. And it's a video slash spoken word piece. And uh, it was basically, um, I just was like, it was something that I recorded on my iPhone one day when I was walking through town. And it was trying to, I was trying to describe that, like, I wasn't actually trying to do anything. I just had something in my head. But when I listened back, I kind of tried to dissect what was happening, <laughs> what I was trying to say, because I don't remember what when I was thinking it or whatever. But it was like um, trying to talk about like, uh, like you know, that, that feeling of like, and I'm sure you'll really relate to this as well, like growing up in Belfast, like during the Troubles. Like, it's like, you know, that feeling of like being a six-year-old and having such a, a weight of the world on your shoulders that most 30 year olds 40 year olds probably will will never experience in their lifetime and grow like having grown up with those worries makes you into this strong person and that idea of like i was never young but i'm not old yet you know and i've always kind of felt that and i see that in my little cousins around me and stuff and i created like a like a spoken word kind of thing and did a, a video uh, around it as well shot the video on the flats and had all the kids in my family because that's what I was kind of like really you know it was talking about like just like I've seen more deaths than anyone I know but I have more love than I ever let myself show and like like having this thing of like like you know because that was something that I was always aware of when I whenever I left my area as well like I like, I had this weird obsession when I was younger with uh, I lived beside like a dead house, you know, uh, like a funeral home. We call it dead house. That sounds very morbid, doesn't it? But I live right beside it, so I'd pass it every day in school, and like, we, I just always knew who was dead in there. Like, I always knew the person just because like it was local, and like people were dying all the time. And my auntie kind of never thought twice of bringing me in there. So I would kind of always just go in and then it got to the point where I was coming home from school on my own I'd pop in the dead house to see who was there like and like my nanny used to go mad but I remember telling my friends that they were like what? like like you know when I went to college they were like some of them had only ever been to like one funeral in their life and I was there, like what so this kind of piece was the first thing that I ever wrote but again I never I think if I had to decide to make my music or my work about that I wouldn't be able to it feels too cringe you know like and it also feels like such a big task because my if it was just my own story okay but it's not it's everyone else's around me and if I had to think about making my work about that be a lot of pressure on me whereas like in between that first thing that I did and this EP I did so much collaboration and I also did a single that was really not related to they're just like you know like like songs about like you know dancing in a club relationship stuff like 
like and I I kind of like that because it's in a way it's kind of not me do you know that's not that kind of stuff is never really heavy on my mind like like in a way I feel like I feel like almost like a safety in saying this but like the hardest thing that I'll ever go through is will never be no matter how hard it is it will never be like a breakup or like dealing with a relationship situation because like I've gone through stuff in my early teens that I'm still kind of like dealing with the remnants of now like you know and it's kind of like like well if I got through that like these other things seem like no one has died no one has died from trying to get over a person or a thing you know well not that I right I, I, that's a blanket statement but you know what I mean like I <laughs> yeah, yeah I know what you mean that way of like yeah. like there's bigger there's bigger fish to fry in my own head so that other stuff singing about that other stuff is almost like a form of escapism to me because heavy on my mind every day is the stuff that was in my last EP and I never really wanted to get it out there I never really wanted to never had a plan to like make music about it just that particular week that particular month that I was making that record like I was like eating breathing sleeping that frustration I was angry like to the point where it was almost like forced out of me you know that that that's I feel like I was just a vessel for those stories at that point I was watching that bit the video um I was never young but I'm not old yet before just before we came on here and it's actually really similar to a line that Bob Dylan has in one of his songs oh I was so much older then I'm younger than that now uh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes I just think back of that and it's like that's so true isn't it? like you can be like a teenager and have the weight of the world on your shoulders for whatever reason or in your 20s or 30s and then later on you can <laughs> kind of like can eventually kind of feel the that weight lifting off your shoulders yeah. and then it can yeah. kind of change your perspective on life I guess um if yeah. that does happen but see even that stuff you're talking about like not always making real heavy like real heavy duty songs and all but the stuff that you're talking about though like dancing or breaking up with someone it's still real as such when you put it up in contrast to like you know kind of is trendy now to be kind of put on like you're from the hood like it's oh, kind exactly. of a punk. so I guess that's a whole other thing yeah and that kind of like honestly like that 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 bugs me a lot like that's been kind of you know obvious to me for the last few years and especially in fashion trends and stuff like that you know you see a lot of like big fashion houses used and kind of like working class uh like styles and trends like in, in their in their brand and stuff and like you know it's like we we get stopped on the street for like for looking that or we looking like that or we get called a child for looking like that but then you put a Balenciaga tag on it and away you go do you know what I mean like it's kind of like that kind of thing really does bug me because I saw like like I tried to stay off Twitter because honestly like every time I go on Twitter I actually want to bash someone like I feel like every time I go on Twitter I find out about another development that's going up in Dublin or else I just hear see someone just being extremely classist like among all the other stuff on the internet like you know it just I, I don't know whether it's like my algorithm or whatever like but every time I go on there's something that like like affects me personally and then like I have to spend my day being like don't like don't react come on like you know and um, but I remember going on and seeing a tweet one day and someone saying uh 
like what's the most um what's the most um what's the most I can't remember what the word was but basically it was like a mixture of hilarious outrageous or something like that what's the most outrageous street that's what it was in Dublin right and loads of people are commenting and then someone was like Talbot Street had to remember walking in there once with my nine-year-old son I had to lift literally lift his chin off the floor there was that many junkies around right and I was like looking at this tread and I was like the person that started this knew what they were doing. I kind of knew this person as well. And I'm like, you know what you were doing, doing that. You know, you're liking all these tweets and stuff. And you are also the type of person who will put on this kind of working class facade to, to seem cooler. And like, that is not cool because like, you know, and the person who made that comment about the son was actually a lecturer in Trinity College. And, um, you know, who had their, who had their, um their, uh, bio as like something like docky girl you know what I mean like in in their bio and it's like you like this is so it's so wrong on so many levels because like until you respect until you respect like our areas and the shit that we've gone through and the stuff that the stuff that like you know I'm sure like and you would understand this even more than I would but like the shit that an eight-year-old has to see that you know thankfully your nine-year-old will never have to see that like until you can respect that that eight-year-old eyes have seen things that like so many adults eyes will never see like you need to respect that before you start like you know talking like that and before you start wearing that accent or wearing that class or wearing those clothes like they're your own when really you look down on us and as well to to kind of respect the fact that if you're talking about an area like it's really easy just to sort of talk about an area as if it's just like over there somewhere not some some place that you're not used to but behind in that area there's like people living there and there's communities living there i actually got into an argument with a fella about a month ago because we were in the city and we were talking about just the conversation about different parts of cork whatever <laughs> he was talking about knocking which is on the north side of cork city and he was like oh yeah there's fucking people walking around up there with hurlies with nails sticking out of them all the time. I was like, mate, I was like, that's not a fair thing to say. Now, come on. And then he was like, oh, there is, there is. There is, they're walking around with hurlies and they're beating people up with hurlies with nails sticking out of them. And like, and even me and one of my brothers, like we, we lived up there and we spent loads of time up there. That's where the club that we played hurling for in Cork is on the north side of Cork. And it was the most, it was the most similar to West Belfast place that I've ever lived. And it's the most at home that I've ever felt yeah, anywhere outside yeah. of West Belfast. Mm. And I think that if there's anything to be taken out of talk, kind of talking about this kind of stuff is to not kind of buy into the stigma that has been put on places because if they may have social problems or maybe like underdeveloped kind of social area or whatever, but it's really important for, for people like not to buy into it because it kind of dehumanizes the people that live yeah. in those areas. Completely. Yeah. The way that I see it is like, you know, someone was someone once said to me, I I was I, I was I pulled someone up before for, um, talking about people from, talking about scumbags, right? In their words, these two scumbags come up to me, and they said, and then they proceeded to say to say exactly what the person said in in the in my accent, right? Or my ma's accent. My accent's a little bit more neutralized, and I hate that it is, but like. When I'm around my family and my friends and stuff and when I'm talking about stuff like this, I tend to be 
I tend to just be more relaxed in my accent. But I think it's also from moving away. I lived in New York for a bit and then I lived in Liverpool. And you do tend to neutralise your accent a bit. But I never lost it. But I remember thinking, like, and I remember saying to them, what, like, and they said this. And I was like, oh, what, like, so they sound like me. No, no, like, that's not what I meant. They didn't, like, but, like, they sound like me. So what does a scumbag sound like, you know? And they were getting all up on their high horse about it. And I was like, no, like, these questions need to be asked. Because if I was, like, less confident or less, like, sure of, like, you know, my qualities or things that I have to offer, I might think, oh, God, I'm, like, does that make me a scumbag? You know what I mean? And I said this to them and they, they put it to me. Well, what about when you mimic or when, you, when you're talking about someone with, like, a posh accent? And I'm doing inverted commas because, like, I, you know, what a po- what is a posh sound accent? But, you know, um, they said, what, you know, what about when you do that? And I was like, it's so different because there's no systematic oppression on middle class people. There isn't. There is systematic oppression on working class people. And this city is laced in classes in Dublin. Like, I don't know much about the other counties in in Ireland. But, like, it grown up from in underprivileged area and an inner city area. Like, I can hand on heart say that even now, as a 29-year-old in 2020, like, you know, that that's still very prevalent. Like, and there is systematic oppression on um, working class people. And, like, you know... For, as long as I'm as long as I'm breathing I'm going to be putting my foot down on that and it doesn't mean like you know I, I sell it so I have uh, I have my address I haven't put it up online yet but I have I, my man's a dressmaker so we were working on a few different things and she made these face masks I don't know where mine is and I find it but basically just says up the flats on it and I, I was selling them at me last week and this girl came up and she's like oh I really want a mask but like is that like cultural appropriation and I was like no, like, no, no, no. like you know and then then I was like god because I'm so passionate when I speak about this I hope people don't take it that I'm like aggressive in me in me uh demeanor or like you know like I I the reason why I talk about this and why I'm writing songs about this um and is because I want people to gain an understanding I don't want to scare people into into not saying things because they don't want backlash that's not my style like you know what I mean like like you can like you know Wear what you want. You use my accent if you want. Talk like me if you want. As long as you have an understanding from the people where if you want to mimic me, great. But don't don't mimic me when you're talking about something negative. Don't talk about a scumbag and then use my accent. If you want to say like you know, loads of my friends will oh, jam it, and they'll say exactly the way I said it, and I think it's gas. Like, do you know what I mean? Because they're not like they're not like looking down on on me or my people. I'm okay with me. Do you know? It's it's. It's more so I get a bit of it uh, in my chest when I think of people being judgmental towards my family. It's like, you know, you're okay with me because I'm an artist and I might be cool to you because, you know, like I make music and I and I don't like I'm not on the labor or I'm not like just working at what you see as an average job. Like I, I, I might pass for you because I have something like cool in and in and doing like inverted commas to offer, right? Um but if you saw my dad in the shop like buying a packet of smokes and you heard his accent or you heard him say like orange instead of orange, right? Or you know, like would you would you think something of him then? And that's that's the way I think of people. Like that's how I kind of like and I've always been like that as a kid. I'm always like very protective of the people around me because like I know how rich and good and solid they are and I'm like I'm not getting letting you in even like this much if I think that I couldn't 
bring you in and have a cup of tea with my family and not be afraid of you judging them. One of the interviews that you did on the paper, sorry, just look at this here. Fucking massive shit just come past the window. Oh my God, the size of that. Are you beside there? So where are you beside there? Just right beside the river in Cork, on the way into Cork, into the city. Are you you were beside the train station as well there? Yeah, you? yeah, just before right, the train station. Yeah. Train station's I, like, just like up there. That's Connolly Station right up there. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That thing you said earlier about whenever somebody was kind of trying to take off your accent and then if you hadn't been so sure about yourself, yeah. the whenever I think about one of the most valuable things that I ever got from the community that that raised us was that sense of self-worth. And that's another thing that the generation before us have to kind of had to take the responsibility for giving the kids in the area that feeling of self-worth because you weren't going to get it from anywhere else. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice actually talking to someone else with the same kind of like the same background, but a completely different area because in a way it almost validates the stuff that you figured out yourself. You know what I mean? Totally. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Next time you're in Dublin, just give us a buzz, bring you down. You can have a cup of tea, meet me dog, me parrot, me man, I'll walk you around the area. <laughs> <laughs> Unreal. Brilliant. Right, here, I'll speak uh, this in. Great to chat to you. And yeah, I'll talk you too. To you soon, right? Bye. All right, slant.